Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're very well. We've got to Friday. Um, we, um, from what we can see from the messages we, and things we've been getting, some of you have gone back commuting. So welcome back. If you are back listening to us on the way in or the way home from work, it's nice uh, for you to catch up, particularly if you can't listen to uh, the show on uh, on Times Radio between 10 and 1. Right, coming up on today's episode, we're looking back, uh, marking the anniversary of uh, 9-11, of course, the 20th anniversary since those attacks in the United States of America. But what we thought we'd do is focus on the politics, and particularly when the House of Commons was recalled on the 14th of September 2001. Speak to Phil Webster, former political editor of the Times. Uh, we've also uh, speak to three MPs who are in the Commons that day. Uh, Samin Campbell from the Lib Dems, Sir Bernard Jenkins from the Conservatives and Dame Louise Elman who actually asked a question. She's the only woman actually to ask a question when Parliament's recalled. So that's coming up in our big thing. But first, it's our columnist panel and it's Friday so it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Let's talk about um, really the big sort of political story, which has got sort of politics watchers excited, perhaps overexcited. Uh, this poll, James, uh, in the Times, YouGov poll for the Times, has the Tories on its lowest, their lowest level since the election, down five points to 33, Labour up one at 35%. How significant is this? And put it in the context of uh, everything that's gone on this week with putting up taxes, scrapping the, uh, suspending the triple pensions lock, taking away universal credit next week. What does it all mean? And is there a risk that the Labour Party gets a bit overexcited that, that's saying and doing nothing? Is they think is a is a, an election winning strategy? Well, it is. Uh, you know, as we say in the trade, just one poll. And but I think it means that everyone will be watching far more closely to see what the the, the weekend's polling shows. And I think it will change the political mood uh, on the Tory side. I think you know. Remember, Tory MPs. You know, they're not enthusiastic about this policy. Uh, and but the kind of the view was well. You know, maybe there isn't an alternative. Maybe it will work politically. If you see more polls showing the same thing, that the the, the, the Tory rating is going down, Labour are now in the lead, that's going to add to Tory unease about this. And it is always worth remembering that Boris Johnson's relationship with the Tory party is very transactional. Um, He is the leader of the Tory party because they think he wins elections. uh, And that that is his appeal. It isn't so much an ideological appeal. It, it, it is this sense that he is a winner. So, and if that begins to go, that, that will cause problems for him. I, I think on your point on Labour, Matt, it, it's very well made because it is striking that Labour are only at 35% in this poll. But the Tories have dropped by five points, but, 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 but that 
uh, lots of Tory support has has gone all over. I mean, a bit to Labour, a bit to the Lib Dems, a bit to Reform. Uh, and I think that that, that shows you that, that Keir Starmer is going to have to be bolder if he is going to get some cut through the public. Uh, Melanie, what have you what have you made of this? And, and from a sort of Scottish perspective, I wonder what to what extent you think that. Uh... You know, the Labour Party has no realistic prospect of a return to power in Westminster without winning more seats in Scotland. Is Keir Starmer having much uh, impact there? Uh, to be frank, no. Um, I mean, as, as, as Patrick McGuire put it in Red Box this morning, you know, that there's there's not been a murmur of original thinking. Um, and he's, he, he's, he's back in the lead a tiny bit. But I... I really don't think it, there's much impact at all in Scotland in terms of what the policy means, because we already have care in our own way. So it's not it's not nearly such a burning issue up here. I think I think this is the the, the, the English reaction to care and um, Tory voters losing their inheritances and all the rest of it. That's the critical issue, and I I think of of remember the reaction to Theresa May's. Uh, proposal for cares in in 2017 uh, you know it 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 didn't help her at all possibly possibly has enough time to come back from this theresa may didn't give herself enough time but interesting I, and, and that's that's the striking thing isn't it james it, it, i think some of the immediate reaction when this poll dropped last night was people pointing out that this, this is perhaps the biggest shift in a poll caused by a policy since theresa may also tried to tackle social care uh, and uh, and we saw what happened in the in that twenty seventeen election. Yeah, social care is one of those problems that is almost impossible to solve. Uh, I was struck when I was asking one Tory MP who, who doesn't like the policy uh, what you would do about it. Uh, you know what their alternative would be, and they said, "Well, just hope that voters don't notice it." And I think this is the problem, which is you run into this problem. Theresa May said, "You know, you uh, would have, might have to pay for your care out of your estate after you die." That was immediately dubbed the dementia tax. People worried that you know they were going to that they weren't going to be able to pass anything on to their children. Boris Johnson has tried to, to fund it through taxation, but that's not popular either. And so you are left with this kind of what does the public want on this? But I think it is. I think that this is. I think one of the one of the other Tory worries this week is you know is the NHS ever going to basically give this money back, and are you going to have to raise the levy again? Uh, to fund social care before the election. I think this poll will make Tory MPs even more uh, reluctant uh, to consider that as an option. And what is the mood of, uh, of Tory MPs this week, James? Because it's been very odd. At the beginning of the week, they were all going to resign. And by the end of the week, um, uh, Boris had basically got everything that he wanted. So I think there was, I think the mood when Tory MPs came back on Monday, there was a lot of grumbling. You know, you, 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 you couldn't find a happy Tory MP. I think on Tuesday... Uh, I think, you know, things, I think partly because uh, it had caught Labour off guard and Labour didn't have a response, uh, they began to be uh, kind of less angry about the policy. And I think also there was a recognition that you do have to get on top of this waiting list and uh, these NHS waiting lists. The, the, the political risks of going into the next election for the Tories with the NHS waiting list at kind of say ten million what was was too great. Uh, and so I think that 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 controls some of the grumbling. But I think the grumbling will be back after this poll. I suspect you could well be right because the one thing MPs like to do it is uh, grumble. Uh, let's um, <laughs> let's uh, let's move away from uh, politics. Let's focus on um, uh, some some like positive news. Some positive news that we can all across all uh, divides uh, celebrate. Um, uh, Melanie, you you picked out this story about um, uh, a new revolutionary drug for lung cancer patients. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I there's just we just forget, don't we? We there's been so much anti-science around. There's been all this kind of the oxygen of publicity has been given to the anti-vaxxers, and you really forget all these wonderful people that beavering away in the back, um, not just doing not just doing the the uh, the, the the COVID vac COVID vaccines, but you know the the con the cancer scientists have been doing it too, and they've come up with. Um, Sotorisib, I think it's called, and it gives um, clinical trials have shown that it gives uh, people who have lung cancer at, at least seven months. It stops the cancer growing, and you know, lung cancer is one of these ones that when you get it, it's it's uh, it's not hard. It's not hard to to. It's very hard. It, it's almost impossible to treat. I think, and so I just love it when when we remember. <laughs> We just remember all the good that goes on in the world. I mean, I know it sounds corny, but um, <laughs> the, the, there, there is, you know, it's just fabulous when, when the, the reality of, of everyday life breaks through and says, hey, there's, there's a little gem here and it's down to, down to people doing good stuff. Uh, uh, James, it's just sometimes it's just nice to focus on something positive, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think there's, I think there's a broader question, which is, I think we are on the verge of a whole bunch of uh, breakthroughs in, in medical science, and I also think if you look at some of the the research on a malaria vaccine that the team at Oxford are doing, I also think that you know that this mRNA vaccine technology is going to make vaccines possible for a whole bunch of, of diseases which it wouldn't have been otherwise. I mean that is a very very you know if there is a kind of silver lining to this crisis, it is that the amount of money that has gone into medical research during it is going to I think lead to a whole host of breakthroughs in the coming years. James Forsyth and Manny to read there, and you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we remember 9 11. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. On September the 11th, 2001, Tony Blair was sitting alone in a Brighton hotel room, putting the finishing touches to his speech for the TUC conference. An aide came in and told him to put on the TV. He saw the second plane hit. September the 11th had also been due to be the closing date of voting in the Conservative leadership contest to replace William Hague. The announcement of the winner was then delayed for two days. Ian Duncan Smith did not have time to celebrate. He had 24 hours to prepare for his debut at the dispatch box as leader of the opposition. And then on September the 14th, 2001, the House of Commons was recalled. 
Mr. Speaker, sir, I'm grateful that you agreed to the recall of Parliament to debate the hideous and foul events in New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania that took place on Tuesday, the 11th of September. Whatever the cause, whatever the perversion of religious feeling, whatever the political belief, to inflict such terror on the world, to take the lives of so many innocent and defenseless men, women, and children can never, ever be justified. As we speak, the total death toll is still unclear, but it amounts, we know, to several thousands. And because the World Trade Center was the home of many big financial firms and because many of their employees are British, whoever committed these acts of terrorism will have murdered at least 100 British citizens, maybe many more. Murder of British people in New York is no different in nature from their murder here in the heart of Britain itself. In the most direct sense, therefore, we have not merely an interest, but an obligation to bring those responsible to account. We are democratic. They are not. We have respect for human life. They do not. We hold essentially liberal values. They do not. As we look into these issues, it is important that we never lose sight of our basic values. But we have to understand the nature of this enemy and act accordingly. Civil liberties are a vital part of our country and of our democratic world. But the most basic liberty of all is the right of the ordinary citizen to go about their business free from fear or terror. That liberty has been denied in the cruelest way imaginable to the passengers aboard the hijacked planes, to those who perished in the trade towers and the Pentagon, to the hundreds of rescue workers killed as they tried to help. I have absolutely no hesitation in giving the Prime Minister my party's full support for his immediate pledge to stand shoulder to shoulder with our strongest friends and allies in the United States. Together we must ensure that the perpetrators are hunted down and, as he said, brought to justice. Over the next, next few days and weeks, there may be some who counsel caution over the full measure of support that the Prime Minister has already announced. In contrast, I would like to say and to assure the Prime Minister that he, throughout, will have our total backing in maintaining his position of unflinching support for the United States in its search for the perpetrators and subsequent actions. It was an American writer who once observed that the terrorist attempts to wash an impure world clean with the blood of innocent victims. Well, the impurity here is the dreadful deed of the terrorist. And that is what this house stands shoulder to shoulder on with our American cousins in full support. Terrorism can be beaten, not easily. It requires, of course, very careful intelligence. The leader and the father of the house is right to point out that one wants as far as possible uh, to avoid injury to any innocent people. That is why intelligence is absolutely crucial. But then the correct application of that terrorism, of that intelligence, which, of course, has to be taken over time. Does the House have the assurance that we ourselves in no way will inflict terror 
on innocent people. Because if we do so, we simply recruit more terrorists. Can I inject a, a, a note of caution? But the American source is now indicating that there could be NATO bombings uh, prepared to, in Sudan, in Iraq, Iran, Syria and Afghanistan. And the whole place could go up in a tinderbox in the Middle East if we're not careful. So I would urge him to talk with President Bush and to find the right targets, to find the culprits. But ultimately, we should be acting not out of revenge, but out of a sense of justice. That was uh, some clips from the debate when the House of Commons was recalled on the 14th of September to uh, react to the events in uh, n- uh, New York, Washington and Pennsylvania. We heard there obviously from Tony Blair, uh, followed by the new Conservative leader Ian Duncan Smith, then the Lib Dem leader Charles Kennedy, the Ulster Unions leader David Trimble, the Labour MP and father of the House Tam Dale and the Labour MP Paul Marsden voicing uh, some uh, the need of, for caution. Well, let's now speak to Philip Webster, who's political editor of The Times and was in the press gallery that day. Hi, Phil. Hi there. The thing that really struck me revisiting the, the whole debate was the, the sense of... Um, it, it was obviously very sombre. It was very serious. People didn't really... So, quite often you might have expected sort of soaring rhetoric or something, but, but I'm sure people really knew the words to, to sort of sum it up. No, I think the, the shock, the disbelief, the anger, the fear in the nation generally at this time, just three days afterwards, was well mirrored in the Commons that day. Um, Calm, measured, generally united, that undercurrent of concern about what bringing people to account actually meant. And there was little doubt in most people's mind that when Tony Blair said that the people who harbour terrorists have a choice, they give them up or they become the enemy. I think even by that stage, people were beginning to realise what that meant. He didn't use the word word war. At that time, Al-Qaeda hadn't been formally identified as the the culprits. But I think everyone was moving to a situation where they knew that some very big decisions were coming up fairly soon. And of course, they did. But overall, I think it was one of those occasions where sometimes we rather piously say the, the House of Commons was at its best. And this was one of those occasions. And uh, there's also this, and also we saw it a couple of weeks ago when, Af- when the House of Commons was recalled in very similar circumstances to, to talk about um, Afghanistan. Um, what is the point in that? Because you're right, the, the, the people sort of came together, the speeches were very heartfelt, they were listened to in sort of sombre silence. But nothing sort of really happened. What, why is it so important in these moments of crisis for the House of Commons to come together? Because they're not sort of voting on making a decision. Why do you think that it's important? I think it's uh, important in, in this particular context. The main purpose of coming together was to express solidarity with the United States and the thousands who had lost their lives. And MPs have a feeling, don't they, that they've, they've got to do something, even though they there's nothing they could do. The only way they could express their horror, outrage, support for the people of America and, of course, for the families of the the British people who died in the Twin Towers was to have a special session of the House of Commons. They called a... uh, The debate started at 9.30 in the morning, it was a Friday, and they called a three-minute silence at 11 o'clock. And that was, I think, their way of identifying... uh, the MPs with the horror felt generally outside and across the world. 
And just paint a picture of your your experience. Where were you when uh, 9-11 happened? And, and what happens then in terms of the politics of it? Obviously, the political of the Times, very close to what's going on uh, inside uh, Number 10. And, and, and what was going through Tony Blair's mind? Because it ended up being probably the single biggest incident which which had such an incredible impact on his own premiership and even how he's viewed today. Well, yes, you could say it was the incident that, was the beginning of the end of his premiership because from uh, Afghanistan flowed Iraq and from Iraq flowed uh, the the end of uh, Blair's premiership. It took some time. But Blair at that point was was determined to show from the very start his closeness to uh, America on this. And as I say, although he didn't use the word war, Jeff Hoon, the Defence Secretary at the end, said that Britain was already considering how it would help any military action that the United States took. Now, Blair knew that his role would be to um, garner support around the world for any military action uh, that uh, the United States took. And my editor at the time, Peter Stotha, decided that I should stick with Blair throughout that following period. So I went off with Blair the following week to New York, where he did the church service in Manhattan to uh, remember the the British uh, people who died. I th- we then flew on that evening uh, to Washington, where George Bush made a speech in which he first referred to the war on terror. And that by that time, we knew really what was going to happen. I was with Blair when he went to visit British troops just a month later in Oman, Uh, Nobody said they were preparing to go to Afghanistan, but of course we all knew they were. It just wasn't officially uh, acknowledged that they were. And I was with Blair again in January uh, 2002, shortly after the Taliban had uh, been defeated or, to be more accurate, had run to the hills, as we now know. Um, I was with Blair when, under the cover of darkness, we flew into Afghanistan in a Hercules plane midnight their time uh, and landed at Bagram Airfield. And it was it was an amazing time to be with him. I think uh, he covered about 45,000 miles in a couple of two or three weeks going around the world, uh, building support for the coalition. I remember one occasion we landed back from India at Heathrow uh, one Saturday evening, and we all had to be back at Heathrow the next morning quite early on uh, to fly to... Russia, and then on down to Cape Town. So it was a fairly mad time. He was going around trying to pick up support absolutely everywhere. And that was seen as, he saw that as his role at the time. He was later to pay for it, I think. And just personally, from your your perspective, how did you feel um, even getting on a plane so soon after uh, what had happened in in America? We had a lot of scary times, actually. (laughs) As um, political correspondents, there, there, there were occasions when we did things that we, we, we would never have dreamt of doing uh, as, as civilians, if you like. It was a scary time. It was certainly a scary time when we flew off from Islamabad uh, that evening uh, to, um, to Kabul. And uh, the, the, t- the Taliban had fled, but they were firing at anything that was up in the, up in the sky at that time. And the... All lights were out in our Hercules. We, you couldn't even see the guy sitting next to you. Um, 
but the missiles were flying up from everywhere and we were just praying among ourselves that there was a defense system up there to help us get uh, to where we were going. It was scary, but uh, it was a job that had to be done. And looking back on it, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to, to have been anywhere else. It was, a, it was a job you had to do as a reporter to, to report these things going on. And uh, the politicians also put themselves in, uh, in the line of fire as well at that time. Phil, it's lovely to speak to you as ever, and thank you for bringing us, really placing us right in that moment uh, 20 years ago. Phil Webster there, former political editor of The Times. Let's now speak to three MPs who were there in the House of Commons at the time. Uh, Sir Bernard Jenkin uh, was the Conservative, is Conservative MP and was Shadow Defence Secretary sitting uh, next to Ian Duncan-Smith at the time. Morning, Bernard. Good morning. Uh, we were also joined by the Labour MP uh, Louise Elman, who was in the uh, Commerce Chamber and was the only woman actually to ask a question. Uh, morning, Louise. Louise, are you there? Yes, I'm here. The, ah, the, there line, we are. There is we are. the line is very broken, but I can hear you. We can hear you now. You can hear you now. Uh, we're also joined by yes. Lord, Lord Campbell, Ming, uh, Ming Campbell, uh, former Lib Dem uh, leader, who was sitting alongside Charles Kennedy as he spoke in the chamber too. Uh, morning, Ming. Hello. Uh, nice to have you uh, with us. Uh, I'll tell you what, first of all, uh, Louise... Thank you very much. Uh, no, <laughs> nice to have you. Uh, Louise, um, uh, I mentioned, I was quite struck looking back at who did and didn't speak during the, uh, the, the recall of Parliament. Um, I mentioned you were the only woman. Let's take a listen to your question, because I want to I know afterwards what was going through your mind as you tried to work out what to say on such an extraordinary moment. Let's take a listen. <laughs> that when the initial horror of the atrocities that have occurred subsides, sophisticated attempts will be made to limit the action that can be taken by trying to link what are regarded by some as just causes with the atrocities that have taken place. And would he agree that such approaches both ignore the fanaticism of those who have carried out these grotesque acts and ignores their unlimited objectives? I agree very strongly with that indeed. And I think there is something we should guard against right at the very outset. I mean, we speak now a few days after this event when the memory of it is still very, very fresh, when we're seeing the consequences of it daily in our newspapers and on our television screens. But we must not let the passage of time in any shape or form dull our determination to carry on with the agenda that we have set out today, bringing those responsible to account and making sure that we then take the action necessary to deal with this, this new phenomenon in, in our world. And I think my honourable friend is absolutely right. Um, and people, of course, one of the, the values that we fight for is the democratic right to disagree. And people are perfectly entitled to have their causes and their feelings about any regime or, or government or system or way of life. But it's up to us to make sure that they are not allowed to pursue those causes in anything other than a peaceful or democratic way. And when we are under threat, and we are under threat um, from these events, it is important that we react and do not allow uh, the passage of time to make us weak in the face of that threat. Uh, Louise Elman, what was, what was going through your mind when you were asking uh, that question? And how, how do you feel here listening back to it, given that everything's unfolded? How, I, I realise how horrendous what has happened was, and that people, in fact, was a, a moment truth because many people, particularly on the left, found it very difficult to recognise the existence of extremism, terrorism like this, and specific Islamic terrorism, which this particular event was about. And I felt, it, however difficult it would be, this must be addressed and addressed in a whole range of measures, and that we must remain 
to do this. And I always knew it would not be something easy. It would not be simple. And it may well be that the threat could not be eradicated, but it had to be addressed and it had to be recognised. And that's what I, I was I, That's what I, I was saying. And I remember now so clearly the feelings I had and the feelings so many people had, that something dreadful had happened. There was the shock of the murder, the mass murder of so many people. It had been organised, organised by people who were committed to their own ideologies, who were influencing others around the world. And this is very international. And it addressed, although the response could never be simple and the solution would never be simple and would never be complete. And it, although what happened that day was not repeated on that scale, terrorism in other forms has, of course, continued and has to be addressed in a whole range of ways. So Bernard Jenkins, Conservative MP, uh, watching the video back from the, that sitting in the House of Commons, you're, you're sitting right behind uh, Ian Duncan Smith, who'd been officially leader of the opposition for, what, about 24 hours. Uh, you were the shadow defense, newly installed Shadow Defence Secretary then. Uh, what was your, um, what's your memories of that time? How do you prepare a new leader of the opposition to respond to such an extraordinary event? In some respects, Ian was quite well prepared himself because he had been Shadow Defence Secretary before becoming leader. And he was he had good contacts with the American administration, the Bush administration. And in fact, um, uh, probably much better contacts than the vast majority of, of government MPs, Labour government MPs. Um, and he had um, um, a very clear view of what the, of what the Americans were thinking and was very confident that we could support the Prime Minister if the Prime Minister gave his support to the Americans. There were a lot of Labour MPs who were very windy about this. And um, you would be surprised how quickly Iraq came into the conversation. I mean, within days, uh, because the um, Iraq was an unresolved problem, a rogue state developing weapons of mass destruction. And suddenly we were we had to reassess every kind of threat. And Iraq was perceived, uh, rightly or wrongly, as a much greater threat after 9-11 than it had been beforehand. And, um, uh, the, and, 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 and of course, two years later, it led to the invasion of Iraq. Um, but but uh, uh, the atmosphere, I mean, everyone was in a complete state of shock. I remember the, the day it happened, I was downstairs having lunch and my phone went and somebody said um, in my office said, I think you'd better come back to the office. There's something going on um, that you need to know about. Um, and I went back up to my office and uh, um, literally picked up, uh, saw, saw the twin tower, one of the twin towers was on fire. I was just picking up the phone to ring in because it wasn't actually leader at that point. The leadership was going to be announced the following day and watched the second aeroplane go into the second tower. Um, and I got hold of him and I said, do you know what's going on? And he said, yes, and you're going to be the Shadow Defence Secretary. Um, so and it, it was very hell for leather. Um, uh, and, and one did an enormous amount of reading and it became very evident very quickly what we should have known. Um, this event was predicted and predictable in many respects um, by people who had not had sufficient um, exposure to decision makers um, and we had a lot of private meetings with uh, the UK intelligence services and Ministry of Defence and foreign, foreign Office and that sort of thing and it very quickly became, I mean it, the one thing that th this really underlined is how brilliant our security services are 
and how well well they advised the, the, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition uh, so quickly. They were so quickly on top of it. They knew that this was al-Qaeda almost from the get-go. And um, uh, they knew that um, um, al-Qaeda was based in Afghanistan. And it became, it was surprising actually how long it took for, for any military action to be taken. And I think that also reflected the fact that um, actually the United States didn't sort of lash out in the way that um, Clinton had at al-Qaeda bombing bases in deserts and yeah. Uh, and uh, there was no reaction of that sort. It was a much more considered strategic reaction. My goodness, there were mistakes in that reaction. Um, Ian and I spent quite a lot of time trying to persuade the prime minister that we shouldn't be ousting the Taliban from um, from uh, um, from 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 Afghanistan. We should be looking for moderate Taliban and moderate Pashtun uh, who would oust the Mullah Omar regime because. Uh, Pashtuns were the majority in Afghanistan. There would never be a credible government in Afghanistan if it didn't include the Pashtun, which meant which meant including the Taliban. And we needed to recognise that the Taliban was something different from Al Qaeda, but there was complete blindness about that in yeah. Washington. And, um, and that, 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 that conversation feels very very familiar now as um, yeah. as well. I'm just wondering, just you t- talking there, Bernard, the extraordinary circumstance to become a leader. Of a political, uh, become leader of the opposition in the middle of what is clearly an enormous uh, global, political, diplomatic uh, security crisis. And whether there is a parallel a bit to what even Keir Starmer has been through in the past 18 months and how, as a leader of the opposition, the politics of it and how you, ma- you manage to have an impact. I and mean, frankly, nobody cares what the leader of the opposition's saying or doing to, to a large extent because this, this, this huge, single huge thing is dominating so much. To what extent do you you think that do you think that sort of the fate was sealed a bit of of Ian Duncan Smith's leadership just because nobody ever really got to know about him? I think on the contrary, there was a sense in the Conservative Party that um, um, actually the party was lucky to have chosen Ian Duncan Smith because he was very familiar with with the with the with the stuff. And the other thing was, we knew that the Labour Party was going to be a big problem for Tony Blair, backing American military action. Yes, and therefore the role of the opposition was absolutely crucial in giving confidence to Tony Blair and to the Americans <coughs> that the Brits would be there. And um, uh, th- there was, in fact, no vote about going to Afghanistan, um, but the, uh, there was, it was not necessary uh, in the early stages. But the, um, but the important thing is, if if the official opposition hadn't been one hundred percent supportive of Tony Blair, uh, then the response to the British government would have been much less certain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really good speech, Sir Bernard Jenkins there. Uh, finally, let's speak to um, uh, Lord Campbell, uh, Ming Campbell, um, as many of you will know, uh, former li- leader of the Lib Dems, but sitting alongside Charles Kennedy in the House of Commons on the day that the uh, Parliament was recalled as the party's foreign affairs spokesman. Uh, Ming, your your memories of that day, and I was interested watching the uh, the video back of the, the debate. You were sort of leaning over, sort of almost giving uh, Charles Kennedy uh, notes or words of advice. What do you remember about that moment in the House of Commons? Well, I do remember how I got there because I was in Australia, the delegation at a Commonwealth MPs conference. And when we were told that the House of Commons was being recalled, uh, then we were also told we needn't come back. But because I was the Foreign Affairs spokesman, I was determined to come back. 
And I came back to rather difficult internal circumstances because uh, the Lib Lib Dem High Command wanted Charles Kennedy to do everything because they were seeking to emulate the influence which Paddy Ashdown had had on the first Gulf War. Uh, And when I got to Singapore, my wife and rang my wife, she said, you better watch out, they're trying to cut you out. (laughs) And so I I wrote a speech between Singapore and London. I got off the plane, I got my um, suitcase at 7.30 from the carousel, and I had to be in Westminster by 9.15 for a 9.30 start, changing changing into my suit, much to the surprise and astonishment of the taxi driver. (laughs) And I did literally not know what was going to happen as I walked in. Uh, There were two rounds. I guess the uh, Louise um, and um, uh, everyone will remember this. What happened was it was Blair first, then it was Ian Duncan Smith. What a baptism for him, and he fulfilled his responsibilities absolutely beautifully, as one might have expected. And then Charles Kennedy. And then there were people able to ask questions. And then when that was concluded, uh, there was a a service in, I think, St. Paul's Cathedral. And the three leaders went off to that. And then um, Jack Straw led a debate as the foreign secretary, Michael Ancrum, uh, was the shadow at the time, very competent shadow foreign, foreign secretary. And I spoke for the uh, Lib Dems, but I only just spoke, as you were, uh, by, um, I think, the efforts of my, of my wife with the uh, Lib Dem high command. One of the things you haven't talked about, I, I don't think, is the fact, although Phil Webster might have, one of the most significant things to happen uh, outside of the Commons was the... Um, implementation of the Article 5 obligation of NATO. And that is the uh, article which provides that an attack on one is an attack on all. It's the first time it had been done, and it never has been done. And it was done by George Robertson, who, of course, had been the um, <clears throat> Labour uh, Foreign Aid Defence Secretary, but had moved to be the Secretary General of NATO. Over, overall reactions, one simply couldn't believe it. And I, th- I remember in my speech trying to say that we, whatever we did, we had to be responsible, it had to be proportionate, it had to be reflect uh, what had happened, uh, but we had to be very careful because Srebrenica was still in people's minds. We had to be very careful that it, this didn't look like white man's justice. And, of course, that's why it was so important that NATO took up the cudgels yeah, and not just the United States with the United Kingdom in support. And George uh, Robertson uh, deserves huge credit for having done that because once he made the Article 5 declaration, no one could do anything other than to act in accordance with that. And in fact, David Williams, who was the peer in the the House of Lords, eventually uh, was the overall commander-in-chief of the NATO forces. So the NATO thread runs very, very strongly throughout all of this. I simply couldn't believe what I saw. Um, I did not, I'd gone back because I got fed up with a bit of the conference and I turned the television set on and I watched it almost yeah. uh, slide by slide. Um, and then, of course, we began to get these terrible photographs of the people who were fleeing uh, on the ground. And then worst of all, and this I'm afraid to say is etched indelibly in my memory, the people who were jumping out of the 15th or 16th story 
because they knew their time was up and they couldn't bear the heat and the exhaustion and all the rest of it. And effectively, they took their own lives. I went back, curious enough, Charles Kennedy and I paid a visit to the UN and, and, and later to Washington together. And we went down to the site. Uh, and again, a thing which was absolutely etched on my mind, there was a notice board. And this notice board, uh, and this is some time later, this notice board still contained messages saying, has anyone seen Alexander Smith, my father? If you yeah. have... Those, uh, those extraordinary messages that people sent, you know, posted. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there were others, and there were others from, obviously, from children saying, um, Dad, I know you're not coming back, but we still love you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.